he gets really, really excited when he comes across my little film canister um, full of uh, mixed herbs. I think I must have had the only port guard who hadn't got a sense of smell. Of course, he thought this was dope, wasn't he? So he just went absolutely ape and he was just so excited. Happy Thursday, folks. My name is Mason Gravely. I am the host of the Adventure Sports Podcast. Well, actually not today, because today's episode's a throwback to quite a few years ago, one of our earliest episodes, and it's with Travis, who used to host the show, Travis and Kurt. Um, Travis hosted this one because Travis is into motorcycles. He, uh, that when I met him, he had a, a motorcycle and he would tour across the country in it. it. It was awesome, and I always thought as soon as my knees give out, which is you know pretty close. I'm transitioning from a bicycle to a touring motorcycle so that I can still go down these paths, still go on these, you know, gravel roads and all across the country. Uh, But, you know, the the engine can carry my weight (laughs) instead of instead of me in my in my legs. So um, I'm super excited to get into this sport. And this interview with Sam is just as you can hear from the intro. He's a great storyteller. It's going to be so much fun. Tons of wisdom tons of practical advice, and some really great stories. And that's what we love here at Adventure Sports Podcast. And before we get started, I wanted to thank the Restoration Depot for sponsoring today's episode. If you're somebody who loves, you know, classes, going to yoga classes or Tai Chi classes or learning about essential oil 101 and wellness classes, uh, but, you know, if you can't do that right now, whether it be work or just being at home or the weather, the Restoration Depot offers you those classes. But online, there are tons of fitness apps and tons of, of things like cycling and, and rowing, all th- sorts of things that are going to virtual classes, and they're doing really well. This is just like that, but for those things I mentioned before, everything from unique parenting to, like I said, yoga and Tai Chi, uh, mental health education even, uh, anything that's more based on that style, that side of health and wellness, you're going to find at the Restoration Depot. And these are not pre-recorded, you know, videos. These are live classes you're able to join. And if you want to try your very first one, choose your class, choose a time that works for you, something you're interested in, and at checkout, try First Class Special as your discount code, and that will get you a $5 class is your first one. So thank you, Restoration Depot. I know for me, I try to do something early in the morning every day. And sometimes I need a little more motivation uh, from, from an instructor from a class than just doing it myself all the time. So thank you again. And let's get into Adventure Travel by Motorcycle with Sam Manicom. How many of you have dreamed of throwing caution to the wind and setting off on a year-long adventure, be it backpacking, sailing, or maybe traveling by car or motorcycle? My guest today, Sam Manicom, did just that, and he did it on my favorite mode of transportation, the motorcycle. Sam has managed to expand this one-year adventure into eight years now, and he's still going strong. He's here today to describe experiences over all of these years. Sam, welcome to the show. Hey, that's great to be with you. Thank you. Good to have you. I've uh, I've heard you on some other episodes, and I've read about you. I have yet to uh, to get your books, and I, I feel guilty because I haven't. You have uh, you have some great books out there, and I want to talk about them later in the the interview. 
That's um, great. Thank you. Yeah. So you're an adventure motorcyclist. Now, <laughs> my understanding is you got into motorcycling late, but you've been traveling since you were a little kid. Let's start off with who Sam Manicom is. And I understand you were even born over in the Congo. Yeah, that's right. Um, my parents were teachers in Africa for 20 odd years. And so I was born there. And um, I guess my itchy feet started from there. Um, age 10, my parents moved back to the UK. And um, for the first few years at school, I was known as Jungle Boy. But it wasn't a surprise because I, was, I was more used to going bare feet than I was wearing shoes and um, <laughs> a winter, an English winter coat. Um, but um, I suppose, it, yeah, it was that um, more than anything that started me with the itchy feet. And I guess that the next stage uh, was when I was age 16. I'd been doing um, you know, Saturday jobs and um, paper delivery rounds and that sort of thing and had saved enough money to buy my first brand new bicycle. Before that, it had been a case of cobbling together bikes from bits that I'd managed to salvage. So there I was. I had this wonderful um, navy blue brand new bicycle in front of me and I was looking at it one day and thinking, I've got to do something with this. What shall I do? And then I thought, I'll ride it to, to Holland. So I, I was living in the, the south of the UK at the, the time and the school holidays were coming. So I um, I borrowed a page out of my school atlas and uh, told my parents I was riding to Amsterdam. Well, you can imagine the, the raised eyebrows on their faces, but um, they were very cool parents. And um, off I set. And I got lost because the scale of the map was just terrible. And I kept on getting lost, but all the time I was slowly going in the right direction. And when I made it to Amsterdam... Um, I was sitting by the side of one of the canals right near the railway station and I was thinking, do you know you're not supposed to have done that? But if you can do this, perhaps you can do anything if you really put your mind to it. And um, so, yeah, that was that was the start of, of um, proper travels. And since then, I've cycled and hitched and sailed and hiked and backpacked and, of, of course, now uh, traveling by a motorcycle. And that came about because of the it's, it's such a freedom thing. But also it was um, giving me a new set of challenges. And, um, yeah, I guess I, I, everything that I like about travel, it comes because of those challenges. You, you're just finding yourself all the time and every new thing that you um, you come across. Often I had no money while I was traveling. Um, I arrived in the Greek islands one time with a 10 US dollar bill in my pocket. And um, on the second day there, I lost it. And that was all the money I had in the world. But I got myself a job. And during the summer season, working three jobs, I saved enough money to fly to Australia. And so, you know, it's 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 amazing what you can do if you put your heart and mind to it. Um, I guess uh, I'm a traveller first and um, I'm a motorcyclist second and um, it's that way around because I, I just love the exploring and the finding out the new things and the motorcycle is such a fantastic tool for being able to do that and um, yeah, I don't ride often without a crash helmet but there is nothing like the feeling of wind in your hair, is there? <laughs> That's true. Um, so what next? Well, I, um, after... The, the eight-year trip, and um, yeah, you're so right. I only planned to be away for a year, but by the time I'd got down to the bottom of Africa, I I just thought, wow, what an amazing way this is to travel. There's no good reason to go home, so just kept on going. And um, 
I wrote a few magazine articles during the the second four years of the trip. And uh, when I got back to the UK, the editor of the magazine um, got in touch with me and said, Sam, we're getting letters and emails from readers saying they like your articles and they want to know when your book's coming out. Well, my thoughts were, well, what book? Uh, I'd never gone traveling with the intention of writing a book and I got a really bad grade in in English at school. So the, the thought of writing a book was the furthest thing from my mind. But Again, it's it's like a journey. If you don't try it, then you don't find out whether you can. And um, people liked my first book, Into Africa, and uh, the other books slowly came out. And I now bounce around um, doing um, presentations at events and basically sharing the fun of the roads. Because um, if I can do it, well, most people could. Um, you don't have to be anybody special I think that's one of the most important things but you do need to have the freedom and the determination uh, to be able to set off on a, on a longer trip yeah absolutely well I think the big question is you know how do you support yourself I mean that's a, a gating issue for most people um, you know for one to do something like this they need to leave a job or figure out how to support themselves on the road so you not being an author uh, from the get-go how did you manage making enough money to live this lifestyle? I'd been working like stink in my last job and um, six days a week, sometimes half a day on a Sunday as well and um, really long hours and I was just saving every penny I had and um, then I sold everything I'd got, my house, my car, furniture, clothes because I'd I'd only been riding a bike um, for three months the day that I got to the edge of the Sahara Desert and with the knowledge of, of what a novice I was um, I thought, you know, you could get halfway down Africa and you could hate what you're doing. You could think that this motorcycle overlanding lark is just not for you. Well, after six months of having sold everything, that's okay. I've got plenty of money. I can go back and I can start all over again um, and that'll be fine. But if I get halfway down and I'm having an absolute ball and I'm trying to do it on my savings and my savings are running out, wow, wouldn't that be just the biggest kick in the teeth? So I thought, come on, just just go for it. And um, that really helped. And by living frugally along the way, you know, wild camping, um, bargaining for my food in the markets, sometimes exchanging um, a few hours work for somewhere to sleep and a meal, and um, just doing typical backpackery type jobs along the way, um, I, I just had a ball. And you, it's amazing how cheap you can travel if you want to. So... People will will listen to this and and think, yes, he's right. I want to do that. Um, it's a it's a hard trigger to pull. What words of encouragement would you have for for those thinking maybe they'd like to do something like this? I think if if you can get yourself in a position where you don't owe anybody any money, where you've got no responsibilities, and you can get the money together to do something, um, then just do it. Go. Um, you may hate it, but actually, after the first six weeks of being on the road, I bet you've got a huge smile on your face and you're thinking, wow, why have I never done this before? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's never too late. You know, you get uh, you get out there and realize that you should have done it years ago, you know, yeah. that it wasn't nearly as, as complicated, I guess. 
But I mean, the reality is for a lot of people, it's just not possible. Um, they can't get the money together. They have got debts. They have got responsibilities. And um, that's reality of life. But my advice is just don't forget your dreams because you never know what tomorrow is going to bring you. And, you know, I, I've got friends who are out on the, on the road traveling in their late 60s and 70s. And yeah, okay, you know, they don't bounce quite so well when they fall off their bikes. But um, they, they say to me things like, yeah, but you know, with a lifetime of experience, I see so much more and traveling more gently. That's just wonderful because you, you see so much. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. You know, those of us with, with children, obviously children need to be raised and educated and paid for, and we have to have jobs to do that. But, you know, I, I like that point of view that traveling in your in your later years uh, allows you a completely different perspective uh, when you're out there, you know, than you may have had when you were 20, 25 years old. You can see the logic, can't you? It's, it just sits, doesn't it? But, I, I, the, you know, the other thing is for people who've got responsibilities – there's nothing to stop somebody thinking about what do I really want to do? I want to do something that's going to be completely different, that's going to scratch my itch, but I've only got two weeks. What can I do? You know, there are places in the world that you can go where you can do something completely different for two weeks. So you've scratched your itch, you've kept your dream alive, you go back home and you carry on with your responsibilities. But back in the, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, that was really cool. What could I do next time? Yeah, absolutely. So let's touch on safety a little bit. Obviously, I think that's a, a big word when it comes to this kind of travel, traveling around the world over overseas uh, for lengths of time. Um, how do you, you view safety when you're out there? It pretty much comes down to common sense and treating the facts that you're in a place where you're the stranger, treating that with respect means that you can cut down the risk factor, the danger, quite quite dramatically. A common sense, yeah, you do your research, don't you? If you know somewhere is going to be, without doubt, significantly dangerous, then why go there unless you're an adrenaline junkie? Um, there are some times on my trips where I've had no choice, really, because it's, I've been faced with riding somewhere where things are possibly dangerous, um, versus putting my bike on, a, on my bike on a plane and flying, and I've chosen to ride, and because I do things like I always ask the people coming towards me, so what's it like? How's it in front? Um, people know those people are the, the people who've got the freshest of news, and if there's something going pear shaped in front of you, then they'll tell you. Of course, that they will. So you go around. Um, you don't have to go over. Do you find situations where people hype it up too much? You know, the people are coming in the other direction. We hear time and time again, people are saying, oh, don't go there. You know, they're, they're willing to rob <laughs> you and kill you. And then you press on anyway, and you're thinking, what were these people talking about? All, all the time. All the time. <laughs> and I don't think it's done with malice. I think it's done because um, people are quite often still buzzing on adrenaline when they've come through a potentially risky situation. Um, all of us, when we're traveling, are being challenged, and those challenges can come from um, the risky situations. And if we've learned something as we've gone through something that's uh, a bit dodgy, then we want to make sure that the next person has as much good information as possible, and sometimes we all get a little bit carried away. Yeah, absolutely. So you're into 55 countries at this point, over 200,000 miles on a motorcycle, and you've been doing it for over eight years. I mean, that's a, that's a short time to cover that much ground. There must be some amazing experiences that have come out of that 
what uh, what story would you have to share one of those experiences? Travis, can we stop there just for a minute? Yep. Um, I'd finished the eight-year trip, and I've been back from it for a while. And um, I now make my living out of um, magazine articles and the books and doing presentations and um, helping organize overlanding events. So you started motorcycling uh, later in life, but you've covered a lot of ground, over 200,000 miles, 55 countries. Uh, when you were doing that, what was an amazing story or two that came out of that experience? An amazing story. Gosh, how many hours have we got? Um, I, th I think, you know, one of the beauties about doing a long, t a long trip is that, uh, and on a motorcycle, is that you can wake up every morning and you can think to yourself, what shall I do today? Not what does my bus or train ticket tell me I have to do? And the fact that once you get away from the rush of trying to do things on time, which of course we've all got to do in real life world, then you have the opportunity to take it easy and to really observe what's going on around you. You've got the time to stop and um, smile with somebody who's a complete stranger. And it's, 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 it's those moments that bring real joy out of a journey. It's the connection with other people. And that comes by learning to take the time to smell the roses. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you, you do a lot of your traveling alone when you are out there on the bike? I understand that you're not on the road now, but um, I think you've had a mix between riding alone and riding with a partner. Is that right? Most of my journeys I've done on my own. The first four years of the eight years I, I did on my own, except for where I bumped into other people and rode with them for a while. Um, but the second four years of the trip, I was riding with uh, a German lass, and uh, we met in New Zealand. And she was riding a, a bicycle through New Zealand for six months. And I reckon anybody nuts enough to ride a bicycle up and down all of New Zealand's mountains was probably daft enough to, to tolerate me. <laughs> and uh, cutting a long story short, and yeah, we spent four years traveling together and uh, we're still now. She's absolutely brilliant. Uh, she's great fun to travel with. And she's just got one of these really inquiring minds um, that that helps you to stop and smell the roses. And I think the beauty of traveling with somebody else is that um, we get involved with things that she has a passion for, but I don't necessarily. So she's introducing me to new worlds. And the other thing is, do you know those moments where, for example, you might be standing looking out at an absolutely awe-inspiring, phenomenal view? And there's something very special to be able to stand or sit there and enjoy this view with somebody that you care about. Um, so, yeah, traveling with somebody else, uh, with Birgit, um, has just been brilliant. Yeah, I absolutely get that. You know, it's I like my solitude time out on the motorcycle, but it was actually just this past weekend when I, I finally got to a chance to ride with my riding buddy. We haven't been out in a, in a while together. And it's a, it is a completely different experience when you're out there sharing and just, even when you're just riding, you know, on the road uh, with another person, there's a, mm. uh, there's a camaraderie that you feel while you're out there. And it is a completely different experience. Uh, it's a, it's a super sensation. And, you know, sometimes when you're traveling on your own, People think that you get lonely. Well, I mean, I never do because I like people. So there's always somebody to talk to. But actually, there's something really nice about being with somebody that you don't have to explain who you are. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So speaking of people, I love people stories from from those who have been around the world and, and 
and experienced all uh, facets of society. Do you have a good story about someone you met in your travels that just really left uh, a lasting impression on you? Mm, yeah, a Thai prostitute saved my life. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> um, I was uh, traveling through Thailand and... Um, I was. Um, I, I just stopped in one of the little beach resorts. It was one of these places with um, bamboo cabins on stilts, with palm fronds for roofs, and um, planned to stay there for a few days. And uh, there was a drop dead gorgeous girl in the cabin next door to me. And of course, we got talking. And um, it turned out that she was a prostitute, and she'd only been doing it for a little while. And um, as we sat, we got to, to talking some more, it turned out that she came from a very poor uh, hill family. And her parents had um, basically spent all of their savings on getting her through school. And she'd uh, been top of the class. Um, and her teachers had said, you know, if you go to university, you'll have uh, um, a magnificent life in front of you. And um, she really, really wanted to repay her parents for all of the hard slogging that they'd done to get her through school and the fact that they left themselves broke. But hey, where's a girl like that going to get money from? Well, she worked out that the only way that she was going to get it was by becoming a prostitute for a few years and a prostitute's foreign tourists. And I was just blown away by the determination of this lass. But then it turned out as we started talking some more that she didn't know about AIDS and she knew about condoms and not getting pregnant and things like that, but she didn't realize about STDs and that sort of stuff. So, of course, we talked an awful lot about those things. Anyway, um, a couple of days later, I'd managed to, to, to suddenly start feeling really ill and I could feel some sort of bug coming on. And uh, so I'd retreated to my cabin armed with bottles and bottles of uh, water and lemonade and packets of biscuits and that sort of thing. And um, within a day and a half, I was so poorly, I could not even get out of bed. Um, another day had gone by, I'd drunk all of my liquid and um, I, I was so dehydrated, I wasn't even sweating anymore. And um, Kulap saw my bike still outside my cabin and hadn't seen me and she came and broke the door down and she saw me in the state that I was in. And she was the only person out of all of the other people that I talked to that did this. And um, she realized what a dire state I was in and um, nursed me back to help. Health. So, yeah, I owe my life to a Thai prostitute. She's really cool. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I'm so sorry that I lost touch with her. I don't know if she made it to university, but I bet she's an awesome woman if she did. Yeah, I sure hope she uh, she hung up the the hung up that occupation and, and went to university mm. after all. That's great. Yep. So adventure means different things to different people, um, but I think we can all agree adventure is something that takes you out of your comfort zone. Mm. What about a story on one of these trips that really took you out of your, your comfort zone, really made you nervous or, or very uncomfortable uh, until you got through it? Um, well... The first year in Africa, I was shot at twice, arrested three times, thrown in jail, had a 17-bone fracture accident crossing the desert in Namibia and various other mishaps. So there were a few of those times there. But I think there was one particular time where things went particularly badly wrong. And um, that was as I was leaving Australia. And um, this situation ended up with me being told by the doctors that I'd never ride a bike again. And um, and the story behind this is that, you know, I was working my way through Australia, fruit picking and that sort of stuff. 
And uh, my last job was working with a film crew in Darwin, which was just an awesome job to do. It was a, a whole world that I never expected I'd find myself in. And that actually, by the way, is part of the fun of working while you're traveling, is all of the different things that you end up doing that you never would do at home. Um, so you learn shed loads. Anyway, um, I was in a storeroom one day and I was picking up um, some he heavy camera kit and somebody came flying through the door behind me. The door hit me in the backside, sent me sprawling on, onto the ground. And as I hit the deck... I just heard a sort of noise and instant agony. Um, and that just threw all of my plans into disarray and I couldn't ride my bike. And But then a whole series of things turned up which actually made this situation work for me. And one was that the shipping company that I was supposed to be using out of Darwin to um, Indonesia said that they would um, arrange for my bike to be stored in a duty-free area so that um, I wouldn't be breaching any of the um, Australian customs um, regulations. And then uh, when I was fit enough, they'd ship it on for me and they weren't going to charge me anything because they'd realized that this wasn't something that I was asking for help with because I'd been stupid or careless. It was something that just can happen. I'll end up spending the next three months um, using buses and so on, uh, buses and boats, island hopping through um, the Indonesian archipelago. And what an awesome experience that was. Um, yeah, it's got its, its rough times as well as its good times. But I walked a lot and I swam a lot from just idyllic tropical beaches until... Um, I got back to, I got round to Singapore, so I'd done a big loop and the shipping company had sent the bikes there to me. And um, I went to the shipping, uh, to the port, and all the time I had this voice in the back of my mind from the doctor saying, you'll, you'll never ride again. And I kept on thinking, yeah, but I've got to try. I've got to try. If I don't try, then I won't find out. And uh, I did all of the paperwork and went and retrieved my bike, which had been, which had survived all of the shipping. And then something very funny happened, which just put all of my fear about being on back on the bike pretty much out of the window. Um, and the first, first swing of my leg over the bike was very nerve-wracking because, of course, I'd lost all of the muscle tone that you get from regularly swinging your leg over the back of a motorcycle. So that was quite um, a, a weird sensation. But I rode the first 100 yards or so, and it felt okay, you know. I I, I realised that I was going to have to be very careful and build that muscle tone back up again, but um, oh, it was fine. I got to the last gate of the port, and there was this really bolshy guard there, and he flagged me down, and there was no mistaking what he wanted, straight over to the side of the road. So I did what I usually did and pulled my helmet and my gloves off and turned the engine off and waited for him to come. Um, and uh, he made me unpack my luggage all over the pavement and you can imagine that this is a main entrance into one of the ports so there are literally hundreds of people streaming backwards and forwards and big trucks and taxis and buses and everybody else so there's me laying my worldly belongings out along the pavement and uh, he gets really really excited when he comes across my little film canister yeah remember those uh, <laughs> full of uh, mixed herbs and um, I, I like cooking while I'm traveling. It's one of the ways that you keep the budget down. And um, mixed herbs are a vital ingredient. 
And um, I think I must have had the only port guard who hadn't got a sense of smell. Of course, he thought this was dope, wasn't he? So he just went absolutely ape and he was just so excited. But eventually one of the officers came down and uh, took a pinch of this stuff. And yeah, this guy, he, he, he just looked as if he wished there was a hole that he could disappear down into. And, you know, for the next mile or so of me riding, I didn't even think about um my back i just thought about how lucky i was that um um the officer had come because it could have got very very screwy <laughs> so maybe a tip is don't carry oregano and powdered sugar with you in foreign yeah, countries quite exactly yes <laughs> that's funny well let's talk about tr tips and tricks then um there are some things that we should and should not do on the road what are some things that after all these miles and and years you've in your experience uh, that you might tell others who who are just starting out to to do or to avoid mm, okay the first one is plan but don't over plan a lot of people spend so much time and money planning to do something and they never get the feeling that they're ready because there's always something else that needs to be learned some other bit of kits that probably would be a good bit of kit to have and they quite often never go um, sometimes it makes more sense to look at the basics that you really need um, and the basics are well you need to be able to sleep well and you need to be able to eat well um, if you can do those two things then you have a chance of traveling with a smile you need to be on a motorcycle which you like riding that's the key and the other key with that is that it has to be in good working order so that when you're setting off, you're not already setting off with a bag of bones that can shake itself to bits the first time you hit a, a rough road. <laughs> um, so plan, but don't over plan. You don't, it's, it's surprising what you don't need out there. And I guess my next tip is don't fear the unknown, but respect it. I mentioned this earlier on. And, you know, when you're in the unknown, um, Whatever your skills are, it's always going to be you that's the stranger. But that's part of the fun. And I think if you go into situations knowing that you're the stranger and that you're not um, fearing something, but you're treating it with respect, you can turn fear into um, something that's actually quite positive and gives you an inquiring mind and gives you the chance to draw on um, the abilities and the background knowledge and so on that you do have. One of my favorite sayings is um, fear is that dark room where negatives are developed. Yeah. That's such a good one. That is it? a good state. Absolutely. Um, I think next tip is as, as far as travel goes, a handshake and a smile go a really long way in just about any culture. Um, it's, it's that, it's that respect thing again. And, most cultures around the world now um, handshake. Um, some don't smile. That's their culture. But actually, in most cultures, that handshake and a smile can go such a long way to showing that you're friendly and that you're respecting the person that you're treating. And that can smooth away a lot of very big potential problems. Um, I think the next one is uh, travel light and travel slow. We talked earlier on about traveling slow, but travel light, um, again, there's so little kits that you actually really do need when you're traveling. Um, and if you take the time to smell the roses, then you recognize when things are going wrong. But I'm a firm believer that when things are going wrong, actually, it's not a disaster. It's just the beginning of an unexpected adventure. And they really can be some of the best adventures. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that may, it reminds me of a, a, a statement that someone made recently, Jim from Adventure Rider Radio had Jeff Thomas on. And mm-hmm. his statement that really hit me was something like, when you travel quickly, you pass through people's lives. And when you travel slowly, people pass through your life. And mm-hmm. that, that really struck me because it's so true. You know, it's, it's about being out there and experiencing people as much as it is enjoying the ride itself. Yeah. No, absolutely. Have you read um, Jeff's book, Ashes to Boonville? I haven't yet, no. Oh, absolutely. if you get a chance to do. Um, it's it's a book that I think is um, underrated. It should have many, many more Amazon reviews, five-star Amazon reviews than it's got. When you read it, you'll see why I'm saying that. Oh, very cool. Well, it's going to go on my list along with your books. And uh, that's you. actually a, a good segue because I want to talk about your books. You didn't start out to be an author. You started out just to be a traveler. And mm-hmm. as you alluded to earlier, you you mentioned that people were, were writing in, commenting on your your paper and magazine articles saying, when's the book coming out? And, you know, here we are four books later uh, and you're still going. So do me a favor and summarize the the books that you have, you know, what is each one about and uh, tell our, our audience uh, about them and, and where they can find them. Okay. The first book is called Into Africa and this book takes you down the east side of Africa. So Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania and on down to uh, southern Africa. It uh, takes a year and it covers the learning curve but also the um, shows me that actually I'm a complete disaster magnet. If something's going to go wrong, then it's inevitably going to go wrong somewhere near me (laughs) or with me right in the middle of it. But it teaches me a lot of really good lessons. And that is where I first came across that rule about um, things going wrong, actually being unexpected adventures. And out of bad inevitably comes something really good and really interesting. So that's, um, and you know, Africa is just an awesome continent to ride on a motorcycle the fact that you can stop anywhere is is fantastic the fact that you can take advantage of all of those side turnings because you've got the freedom to do it and africa is about 7000 miles long and into africa takes you um on a ride of 22000 miles because the bike gave me the freedom to explore all of those things the scenery is absolutely stunning and there are an awful lot of um, really bad reports about Africa and Africans. Well, I think that my book, well, I hope that my book gives people a very level, honest um, view of the continent. Things aren't always rose-colored, but there's an awful lot in there that's just fantastic. Diamonds of life. Um, it was that year that actually made me decide not to go home. And my second book is called Under Asian Skies. And that takes you through Australia and New Zealand and then up into Southeast Asia, India, Nepal, Pakistan, Iran, Turkey and through Eastern Europe. And um, by the time I got back to Europe, I was thinking, stuff it, I'm not going home. This overlanding lock is just fantastic. And um, during that time, uh, Birgit and I had ridden together for uh, three months in um, Nepal and India and we'd got on so well. Um, I said to her, look, I'm going to South America. Would you like to come with me? And she said, well, yeah, on two conditions. I want to go to Africa first and I want to have my own bike. Africa first. Yeah, okay, why not? I don't mind going back to Africa. That's a nice nice surprise. And your own bike? Well, yeah, okay, um, go for it. But if you're going to have your own bike, then you've got to know how to service and maintain it. And um, with that in mind, she bought herself a, a beat-up old 1971 BMW 
um, and she stripped it to, to pieces um, with two different mechanics and put it back together again. And uh, she actually, she's actually done sight better at balancing carburetors than I am. Uh, <laughs> I could take a few lessons from her then. <laughs> oh, she's she's brilliant. She's got a real good feel for it. So the first first part of first um, third of um, my third book, uh, Distant Suns, takes you through from Mombasa in Kenya down to Cape Town. And then we travel across from Southern Africa to South America in the nuttiest possible way that two budget motorcyclists could ever do. But I'm not going to spoil the story by saying what happened. And uh, then it takes the reader on down to the southernmost tip of South America and on up through South America and through Central America. And um, uh, we were just simply blown away by the scenery in South America and um, the customs and cultures. They really do change at every single border that you come to. And um, that's quite fascinating. It's one of the things that I love about travel, the way just this imaginary line across the earth um, can make so much difference to how people dress and the food they eat and the, the houses that they live in and so on. Um, so that's the third book, Distant Suns. And the fourth book uh, is called Tortillas to Totems. And it takes the reader from Mexico up through the United States and um, up into Canada and towards Alaska. And um, this book never, nearly didn't get written because I wasn't sure if anybody would be interested in reading about um, North America. But I'm absolutely gobsmacked. Um, at at, um, at the feedback that I get from this book. I'm very, very honest, by the way, because I went into the States with um, preconceived ideas about how it was going to be. And some of them weren't particularly good. Uh, but the countryside and the people blew those preconceived ideas out of the water. And it's one of the reasons that I keep going back to the States. Um, I've been made so welcome um, in North America and, uh, yeah, love it. Well, good. I'm happy to hear that. I think uh, I think we do. Unfortunately, uh, government actions and as with all countries, you know, can can put a bad taste in, in people's mouth if they haven't been in a, a specific country. But I'm glad you visited and, and uh, saw that things are, are a little bit different than you expected. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it made me analyze very carefully um, what I was seeing around me and taken for granted in the UK when I got back. And there were an awful lot of things here that I found that um, I didn't like. Um, but actually, once you realize what's real and, and what's just in your mind, then you can have a much, much firmer grasp and value for what there is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that summarizes uh, everybody's expectation about going to travel the world, you know, going to other countries is we all always have these preconceived notions of, of what it's going to be like because of what we've seen in the media or heard, you know, and hearsay. Mm -hmm. And time and time and time again, you, you talk to people like you who have gone and experienced it and they come back and they say, look, don't believe any of that. Don't even listen to it. Approaching your trip, just go experience. Obviously you have to, you know, factor in a little bit of safety, like, like you spoke about, but you know, go experience it and make up your own mind. And it's probably going to be much different from, from what you expected. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And as you say, so many um, overlanders say that. My belief is that there is no smoke without fire. Um, but that fire may be the size of a match head. So the big cloud of smoke that's been created and hovers over it, well, it's just misleading. Um, let's go and see what the fire actually is. And that's one of the beauties of traveling is that you can find out things for yourself. Um, and yeah, you, you're constantly surprised. It gives you a much better feeling about this magic world of ours that we live in. 
mainstream media spends too much time concentrating on doom, gloom and disaster. And they do so in a very unbalanced way. I'm quite cynical about the media, as you're probably already guessing. Some parts of it are excellent and they really try hard. But other parts of it, they're just trying to sell newspapers and they know by scaring people they'll sell newspapers. And I think that's really sad because this world of ours is just brilliant. So where can we find your books? Like I said, I I have got your four books in my my reading to-do list, and I will likely blow through them very quickly. I tend to do that with motorcycle adventure books, uh, like anybody that who's an enthusiast. Where's the best place to go learn more about you as well as get your books? Well, my website is uh, www.sam-manicom.com. So that's um, M-A-N-I-C-O-M. Um, but so there's lots of background information there and um, excerpts from the books so people can have a look and see whether they like my writing style or if it's complete rubbish then they'll think right okay I'll spend my money on something else uh, but the, 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 the simplest and the cheapest way to get my books is from uh, a company called The Book Depository and they do free worldwide delivery which is awesome because that makes them incredibly cheap to get hold of so that's The Book Depository Oh, very cool. We'll definitely get those in the show notes and uh, and linked up so people can find them easily. And I wanted to point out, there's a lot of information on your site. Um, there's other video interviews. Um, you also do a lot of uh, speaking engagements, uh, many in the UK, but I know you're also going to be over in the, the States uh, here pretty soon. What's that all about? Well, I mentioned before that I really enjoy being in the States and although we ended up spending 18 months in the States while we were on the trip um, between Mexico and Canada and Alaska and back down again and so on, um, that wasn't enough time to even scratch the surface of, of everything there is to learn and see. So I really enjoy getting back to the States but I'm also very conscious that the world of adventure, motorcycling and overlanding in the United States is growing fast because more and more people are beginning to discover, actually, I could do this. And I really love being around the buzz that's that's happening in uh, North America now with regards to that. So for me, being able to bounce around and do presentations and so on is, is just passing, you know, sharing the fun um, and encouraging people to think, well, my goodness, if an idiot like Sam can do this, then perhaps I can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you had mentioned that you'll be at the uh, Overland Expo West down in Arizona in May. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm personally hoping to get down there. I haven't uh, made my plans yet, but I'm hoping to get down there and experience for the first time. Um, but you had also mentioned it to me that if people uh, find you there and mm -hmm. mention that they heard you on the Adventure Sports Podcast, that you'll give them 10% off of the book sale. Is that correct? Absolutely. Now it'd be a pleasure to do so. Um, so yeah, just come along and say the name and heard you on the show and Travis said I could. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, no, we'll make that happen for sure. And the Overland Expo West is happening uh, just outside Flagstaff in Arizona um, around the 20th of May. So it's a, it's a really good time uh, to be there. Yeah, and if you have yeah. any interest in world travel, uh, whether it be on motorcycles or you know in, in vehicles themselves, um, check out the, the Overland Expo information and see if you can't get down there and uh, see what that's all about and go visit Sam at the same time. Maybe he'll even sign your book for you. 
That'd be a pleasure. I'm doing a whole bunch of classes as well and um, presentation on traveling in Vietnam and um, various other things as well. So, um, yeah, come in and sit in on my classes. Um, professional heckle is needed. <laughs> I'll try to be there and heckle you. How's that? Okay. <laughs> so let's get on to uh, motorcycles. You had mentioned uh, uh, your partner's motorcycle being a uh, an older BMW. What are what are you riding? And have you been riding the same bike the whole time? Mm, I learned to ride on a little Kawasaki um, one two five um, KDX. Uh, which I had for six weeks. It took me six weeks to pass my test and then straight on to um, an R80 GS BMW, which was new at the time. And um, I'm still riding her and she's got 282,000 miles on her now. She's still my only means transport. She's a class act. She's had a lot to put up with. Well, that says a lot for that bike to be able to cover that many miles and under those kind of conditions that you see out there. Uh, She's been brilliant. About, I guess, 5% of the time she's been the wrong bike to have. Um, in very heavy mud and very soft sand. Um, but the rest of the time, she's either been brilliant fun or perfectly competent. And I think for a big trip, you can never have the right bike exactly 100% of the time. So I'm really happy with those, that um, percentage. Yeah, absolutely. So you've chosen that bike. Um, is that, would you recommend that bike if, you know, if people can find one in, in decent shape uh, or? from your experiences, is there something else you would point somebody to? I mean, I know that that's kind of a loaded question because you're, you're talking about different size people, depending on what they want to do, what they want to carry men, Mm -hmm. women, you know, all of that. But I think the general question is what is the quote unquote ideal bike? What is it you're trying to get out of your bike at least to, to do this kind of travel? It's, this is one of those $64 million questions, isn't it? And <laughs> it goes a little bit back to what I was talking about before about um, do you like what you're riding and is it in good mechanical condition? Because those are two of the most important things. You know, at a bike that's ergonomically wrong for you so that you, you're never sitting comfortably, well, why would you want to go off and do a long trip on that? A bike that's constantly breaking down, uh, unless that's a key reason for you to, to be on the trip because you want to defeat the constant challenges, then, well, um, why would you? Um, I think the next thing that goes to choosing your bike is what sort of trip do you want? Are you going to stay on the best quality asphalt you can find all of the time? Are you going to do purely dirt roads or are you going to do a general mix of whatever you find? And those three categories will help you decide what bike you should be on. Um, for a trip. Uh, last year I was um, in the States in um, and, and the southeast and I was riding um, a Kawasaki Versys, a 650 that uh, ADV Moto magazine had loaned me. And um, I'd, I'd read a, a bit about the bike and everything I read said that this was a pretty mediocre bike. But um, with a few tweaks, well thought out tweaks, ADV Moto turned this bike into something that was simply awesome to ride. And I loved every minute of it, except when I dropped it on the Blue Ridge Parkway in the fog and the rain. But that's another story. (laughs) Ah, I was heading for the deck and my first thought was not, ouch, this is going to hurt. But no, I'm dropping their bike. But um, bless them, they were fantastic. And um, their first question to me was, are you okay? Not, what have you done to our bike? But anyway, I've digressed. That, hunt, that um, Kawasaki um, Versys was um, thoroughly underestimated, underrated bike. And um, yeah, I was very impressed with it. But um, this time, um, when I'm over for Overland Expo, and I'm going to be doing a few other 
um, event. I'm in the process of signing up to do the 49ers event at uh, Mariposa in California, and I'm hoping that I'm going to be at a few um, BMW dealers as well. Oh, fun. Um, Al Jesse from uh, Jesse Luggage. He's lending me an F800 GS, and I'm really looking forward to riding this bike. I've heard a lot of very, very good things about how competent it is. So, um, yeah, I'm going I'm to find out for myself. Yeah, I'd like to know your opinion on it. Those are, uh, I think that class is my, my sweet spot as far as I'm concerned, the Tiger 800 and the, uh, the F800 GS uh, from mm-hmm. BMW. Um, they're just, they're, they're really good off-road bikes, yet still comfortable and, and heavy enough to be, uh, to not be knocked around on the highways at the same time. Mm, yeah. 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 Well, maybe we'll get together and I'll let you know. <laughs> Very good. I look forward to that. So let's talk about inspiration. Where do you draw inspiration from world traveler? You're out there all the time. Something's got to inspire you to, uh, to do all of this and, and keep a, a good frame of mind about it. People. Always. Um, people are just full of inspiration. I think people are, are fascinating. Um, they're so full of surprises. And um, most people in this world are kind, open-hearted, genuine. And each person you meet, if you take the time to talk to them, have a fascinating story. And it's it's a real travel is a, a, and enjoying people is a real lesson in not judging books by their covers. You, know, you can talk to somebody who is the scruffiest, dirtiest, smelling person, and when you spend 10 minutes talking with them, you find out that this person is absolutely awesome. The, the story they have is quite phenomenal, and you can learn shed loads. Um, so, yeah, no people, always. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how about a funny story to wrap up this episode with? Um, this is uh, You've been doing this for quite a while now and uh, have experienced many, many people and, and individual experiences. There's got to be one good story to, uh, to give us a laugh before we sign off. <laughs> um, yeah, I had to really scratch my head when you said to me, I'm going to ask you this at the end of the show. <laughs> and I, I made a list of about 10 different stories that I could tell you. But actually, the one um, that I've picked is a story that um, made me laugh um, so hard that I nearly fell off my bike. And it has to do with Birgit. And it's in uh, the story comes in um, Central America. Now, it's a real true story of gently, gently and thoughtfully following your instincts um, can be as exciting as following them quickly. Well, this is a story of following them quickly and what happens. So we're at the, the Nicaragua-Honduras border, and we'd been listening to so many of those scare stories you were talking about before. Everybody was coming towards us and saying, no, the, the border crossing, the guards are terrible. They're going to rip you off. There's bribe your way to get through. There's no way you'll get through otherwise, etc., etc." And by this time, um, we'd been on the road for, what, six and a half years, and we'd never paid a bribe anywhere. So there was a part of me that was stubborn, a part of me that was um, feeling lazy. Oh, gosh, are we not really not going to finally at long last be, get away with this? We're going to be hammered into the ground. So we thought about it. Okay, so what can you do so that you're going to cut down on the risk of having to pay a bribe and all of the anger and frustration that goes with it? Well, why don't we just find a border crossing that's much quieter? Um, it's off the beaten track, and maybe the officials there will be le- less hassled and less aggressive and, yeah, more like country people, a bit more open to humor interaction. So this is what we did. 
And um, the Nicaraguan side went absolutely smooth as anything, except uh, as usual, we needed um, a zillion photocopies of our paperwork, you know, your um, your health certificate, your passport, your driving license, the paperwork for your bike, and et cetera, et cetera. Loads of copies of each of these. And these were got from um, a little old lady, and this was um, her job. And she had um, a photocopy machine that lived outdoors, but in, in the archway. Of a, of a shop and she sat there with all her traditional robes on and um, that's where everybody went if they wanted photocopies to pass a vehicle through and uh, when she first told me how much it was going to cost I thought you extortionist um, but well you've got no choice there aren't any other photocopy machines so you pay your money and you walk away and I just thought well yeah good for her though you know she's found a way to corner the market and she's making a living she's not starving so yeah good for her it's part of the adventure Anyway, went across to the Honduras side, and this was the side we would, we'd been told we were going to get real hassle. And um, the first thing we, we found going into the customs offices was that we needed shed loads more photocopies. But they didn't have a photocopier. So we ended up having to go back into Nicaragua to use the Nicaraguan photocopier. Um, I was so happy I hadn't hassled this, this little old lady um, the, when she tried to, to charge us as much money because she could have just said no and clapped her hands together and that would have been it. We would have been stuffed as far as getting into Honduras is concerned. But, you know, all the scare stories, they were just completely blown out of the water. The, the customs and the immigration of, uh, officials on the Huron, Honduran side um, were amazingly helpful. You know, we knew enough Spanish to say hello, please, and thank you. And Birgit spoke quite a bit of Spanish, so she was able to, to speak with politeness. We'd shaken hands, we'd smiled, we'd been prepared, and we were patient. We were crossing the border first thing in the morning, so we weren't under time pressure, and these guys hadn't been hassled by idiots like us all day. So they were quite amenable, and one of them said, okay, that's it. Um, you just need one more stamp in your passports and then you're finished. But uh, no more fees, nothing. And by that time, I think we paid about um, 10 US dollars for um, motor insurance to ride through Honduras. And that was about it. I can't remember how much it was, but it was, it was not a lot of money. Anyway, we went to the last office. And this was the, the police office. And it was like stepping into the set of a B-movie. You know, the, the lights were all down. It was gloomy and um, full of filing cabinets and um, a beaten up old metal desk. And um, in the background, there were a couple of really big, muscular guys straining at their uniforms. And I swear their knuckles were dragging on the ground. They're just a couple of gorillas. The, the, the guy at the desk, this weaselly sort of looking fellow with his really immaculate uniform, sort of snapped his fingers at us and said, passports. So we handed over the passports and Berger and I looked at each other and thought, aye, aye, what's coming now? And uh, he stamped the passports with um, plenty of power in those stamps. He sort of re a real statement of I'm the big I am. And then said, right, that's going to cost you. There is a fee to pay. And Berger, quick as a flash, picked up the passport and said, no, there isn't. We're leaving. And she, she just walked out, <laughs> leaving me with, with the, the, the police officer and his two henchmen looking at each other with just gobsmacked expressions on our faces. Well, I managed to get my wits together a little bit quicker than they did. And I said, she's right, you know, and just left. And outside, we looked at each other, climbed on our bikes, sort of eased on away from the border, <laughs> thinking, 
ah, oh, we really hope that they haven't got telephones working in this area. And by the time we sort of, we were a few miles away, I was laughing so hard because, of course, the adrenaline was popping. I nearly fell off my bike because I was laughing so hard. And Birgit and I just looked at each other and we thought, wow, um, perhaps we shouldn't have done that, but hey, we got away with it. <laughs> That's great. You're probably not going to get away with that too many times, but it makes for a great story. <laughs> Yeah, there are plenty of places where doing that wouldn't have worked. Um, but Birgit's instincts um, were just absolutely right at, at that moment. So, yeah. It was, a woman's it was intuition, right? <laughs> she knew what to do at that moment in time. Yeah, she's got really good senses. Um, I got in less trouble when I was traveling with her. <laughs> I'm sure. That's great. We're right on. Well, Sam, keep on writing and keep on traveling. And uh, I assure you, we'll keep on reading because. Uh, we all enjoy a, a good adventure story, whether it's on a motorcycle or any other mode of transportation uh, or ways to, to get around the world. So we appreciate your time coming on the show and sharing some with us today. No, oh, you're very welcome. Thanks very much for inviting. I, I've enjoyed short talking with you, and I hope we do link up at um, Expo West. Yeah, I will make my, my best effort to come down there and see you for sure. Cool. All right. Terrific. Take care. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>